and sometimes why. Why? You're listening to And Sometimes Why, twice-monthly, long-form conversation podcast hosted by singer-songwriter, producer, and pseudo-intellectual Rob Zabo. Hey, folks. Welcome back. Welcome back to And Sometimes Why. I'm Rob Zabo, your host. This week's guest is Roger Chavassos. Roger is a musician. He was a top call session player for decades. He's played with so many people over the years. You'll recognize the names. And he changed his life. He's now a super successful real estate agent in Toronto. So we'll dig deeply into all that in the upcoming conversation. But before we get into that, I want to talk about Eddie Van Halen. That's right. Anybody who knows anything about 80s rock knows that Eddie Van Halen is the guitar god. And if you don't know about 80s rock, well, then I'm going to talk about it and uh, maybe enlighten you. It's funny. It's funny when you get into talking about celebrity deaths and people like I'm about to do now try and convince you that, you know, you should be somehow emotionally invested in the lives of celebrities. And I'm usually not like that. I'm usually the guy saying, you don't know this person. What do you know about their life? What do you know about what they're actually like as a person, whether they're a good person, all that kind of stuff. But in this case, I don't know what to tell you. It just hit me. It just hit me. It kind of hit me like that when Chris Cornell died. And these are, these are huge influences on my musical life. So obviously that's got something to do with it. But in, in this case, Eddie died, what, a couple weeks ago and People like me, people whose lives were touched by his guitar playing, his music, the music he wrote and the way he played. I don't know, man. I got choked up. I was listening to his music. I just spent a night going through all the different albums that I'd listened to as a kid and had a Zoom call with some tight buddies who are guitar nerds like I am. And it kind of brought a tear to my eye. And I know, I feel almost embarrassed saying this, but... I don't know whether it's the loss of a part of my identity in some way, but I mean, the music doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear just because this guy died. What he created is not going to change. The fact that it changed the way guitars sounds now, none of that's going away. So what am I, what am I choked up about? Maybe I'm choked up about the fact that I'm getting older and parts of my life are dying. Is that it? I thought some of you might relate to this, not so much about Eddie himself, but just about this idea that some part of you out in the world has died and it's out of your control. I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. But what I can tell you is there was no shortage of conversations about what Eddie Van Halen's playing, what his guitar playing meant to the world and how it changed everything. I mean, for those of you who don't know this, you might think, oh, you're just an old rocker and you're talking about something that meant something to you, but it's kind of quaint now. Nobody cares, right? If you care about music, if you care about rock music, he changed everything. I mean, this guy changed everything about the way people play guitar from the actual playing with the tapping and with, like, listen, his rhythm guitar playing is second to none. I mean, the way it was presented to on record, one screaming loud guitar in your left ear. 
and you could hear absolutely everything. I mean, this was nirvana for me. It still is. Putting on the beginning of Unchained and hearing his guitar amp sounds like it's going to blow up. And this is a guitar that he made himself out of scrap pieces, Frankenstein guitar. He wound the pickups himself. He changed the amount of voltage going into the amp to make it sound like it was going to blow up. He... I know he's not curing cancer, but he's making a difference in people's lives. He's getting young kids in suburbs a reason to come out of their shells, a reason to do, a reason to get out into the world, a way to express themselves. Maybe that's what I'm on about. Maybe I get choked up because it's, it's inspiring. It's more so the effect it had on me. Here I was in 1984 or whatever it was listening to Van Halen's Fair Warning on headphones in my basement as an introverted kid who used to spend six hours a day playing guitar. You know, I'd come home for lunch in high school and practice guitar for an hour. Then I would go back to school and get home at 3 p.m. and I'd play guitar until I ate dinner. Then I'd eat dinner quickly and go back and play guitar until I went to bed. And I did this for years. And, you know, is that what I'm sad about? Is that what I'm feeling like, hey, that's gone. I can't do that anymore. I'm an adult. And so what Eddie Van Halen represented is somehow tied to that. And you know, hard rock music is funny because now that I'm older, I look back, a lot of lyrics are so goofy. And I felt like that at the time too. I felt like this music is so great, but the lyrics are kind of goofy and sexist and all this shit. And I felt like that at the time too. And for the record, Eddie never wrote lyrics. It was just music. It's just so pure, right? I mean, I've had to try and convince people who didn't grow up with it or who don't have a sense of context for why it means what it means to people like me. Because it can seem cartoonish, right? And the only way I can express it is there's nothing that moves me viscerally like hard rock does. There's nothing that makes, you know, some people jump out of airplanes. Some people go skydiving. Some people go bungee jumping. If I hear Eddie Van Halen playing the guitar, it makes me feel alive. Maybe some of you had had this sense of loss too. I'm just putting it out there because everyone has had some kind of experience like this whether it's an author, whether it's a sports figure, whether it's someone in academia who touched you, who touched your life in some way. And when they die, that changes you too. So what does that mean? I'm not sure what it means, but it hits you. That's all I'm trying to say. Enjoying the podcast? Make sure to subscribe in the app you're using to get new episodes twice a month. Want to help spread the word? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. More reviews and ratings means the algorithm shows and sometimes why to more people. If you listen on Spotify, you can share directly to your Instagram and Facebook stories. It all helps get the word out. But the very best thing you can do is tell a friend. And let me add one more thing to the call to action that you just heard. If you care about the show, if you like it, if you listen to it every two weeks, consider sending me some dough on the coffee app. It's easy. The link's in the episode notes. It really helps keep this thing going. Thanks in advance for even thinking about it. All right, let's dig into the conversation for this week. This week's guest, like I said at the top of the show, is Roger Travassos. Now, we have a lot of history. Raj and I played in the band Plasticine in our 20s. And so this was late 90s, early 2000s. 
And that band did a few tours, and we got to experience the Canadian music industry and touring as 20-somethings. And you learned so much. I learned so much at that time. And Roger really shaped the way I think in a few ways, and we'll dig into that. Roger has done a lot in music. He's toured with lots of very prominent Canadian acts. He's toured with Remy Shand. He's toured with Jack Soul. We talk about both of those, but he's toured with a long list. I mean, he was a top call session musician for decades, and then he made a huge change. He went into real estate, and he's never looked back. So let's do it. This is my conversation with my pal, Roger Travassos. So you've gone from being a 20-year veteran touring musician to a successful real estate agent. And you did that in your early to mid-40s, is that right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I have the timeline, right? Yeah, on that? yeah, that's right, yeah. I think of that, man, and I look at you and knowing you from, you know, early 20s, and I think that's a huge change. Can you put your finger on what you were thinking at the time and what pushed you to make that big fundamental change? Well, the biggest one was I wasn't happy playing music anymore. That's something. I worried for my future quite often. You know, I, uh-huh. would look, I would look at the idea of me lugging a drum set around in my car in my 60s to make, you know, anywhere from 100 to $400, depending on the gig. And I thought, this is not going to work out well for me. Right. You're looking ahead. Yeah. I, I, like I had some big fears and, and really I didn't have any of that until I, I got my little girl. Right. So. Just oh, really? For people who don't know, it's like we're an adoptive family. I'm a happily married man with a, a little girl from Ethiopia. And, you know, the day that I met her, I fell in love with her instantly. And from that moment on, you know, my future and everything I did uh, mattered more. Right. And, and it really kind of changed how I was looking at things and what, what I thought I needed to do moving forward. Wow. That was it, eh? The reason I'm I'm saying it like that is I'm like, I've been worrying about my future for a long time and I don't have a kid. <laughs> and obviously, <laughs> maybe if I had a kid, I, I would have made more of a change. <laughs> right? Um, part of it too is, you know, I look at you and, and you're, you've always stayed true to what you believe in in the art. And you've, you create your own music. So I, I was a drummer and I was working for hire and I was quite often doing things that I wasn't passionate about. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the creator behind what was happening. I was working for a paycheck while right. playing drums. Yeah. And that killed it for me in a lot of ways. It's like I wasn't really passionate about what I was doing. So if I'm not connected to it, then why am I doing it? Right. It must have been scary. Like I put myself in your shoes. Here you are feeling like that. You think, okay, I got to make a change. Can you walk me through that process of, okay, okay, now what? Can I tell you about how I actually made the change? I, that's I what was, I'm asking. I would love to. I've, I've been dying to so hear all this, the, man. The one thing that th- there was like a very specific moment where I woke up. I was driving home from a gig that I did with Michael Casehammer. I had Devin Henderson, who's a fantastic bass player in the car with me. I'm driving. Uh-huh. It's a Saturday night, late evening. We're driving home and I asked him, what are you doing tomorrow? And he says, I'm going to work. I'm like, What? He's like, yeah, I'm working at, I forget the name of a coffee shop and I'm, I'm being trained on the beans and we're going through this whole. And in my mind, I'm thinking he's younger than me. He doesn't have a family. He's going to work tomorrow. And what am I doing? 
Right. In that moment, I don't know why, but that specific moment, I decided that's it. I went home on Monday. I enrolled in the real estate courses. So had you been thinking of real estate for a while by that point? No. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you how'd you pick real estate? My wife was always uh, someone who kind of pushed me in that direction, said, you'd be good at it. You're good with people. She knew that I could never work for anyone. Something that I can get, get into without going back to school was quick. This is like, why don't you give it a try? It's, it's, it's something that I think you'd be really good at. And so there's some schooling, but it's not school like going for four years or something like that. Actually, I, I went, went through the courses as quickly as I could. And now it takes a lot longer to do it than, than when I had originally did it. I think I got my license in six months. Right. Um, Because I just went at it just like I would if I was going to practice something on the drums. I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I just dove right in. But, you know, it's it's not the best. The best schooling I got for it was being a musician. I'm successful as a real estate as a real estate agent because I worked as a musician for 20 years. What do you mean when you say that? Well, being a real estate agent is really about all the hustle. Uh And if there's anyone that knows, I say this to all of my musician friends that have this question of like, how did you do that? If you can survive in the music business and make a living, you can survive in any business there is out there. All the tools that you are using to be successful, to be like a good musician and run that business the way it should be run and show up on time and scheduling and the way you appear, the way you talk to people, these are all skills that are needed everywhere and anywhere in life. And to be successful as, as a musician, you have to be good at them or you are dead in the water like you're you're not gonna make it and that's that's why it worked for me like the hustle worked for me like my first year in real estate i wasn't scared to go knocking on doors because i knew what it was to go chasing for money that's what i'd done all my life i want to go back to what you said your wife said she knew you could never work for anyone what's that about wow it's funny that you asked that question i'm discovering that more and more right now uh, just who I am and how I am in, in situations. And I'm discovering right now in my life is that yeah, I don't like anyone telling me what to do ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally like that, Raj. Yeah. And yeah. I'm actually even discovering where it came from. Like growing up, my dad pushed me so hard to be the best that I could. Uh-huh. And he's from him, it was like complete love. And for me somewhere, I made that mean like this guy is never happy. And like, I can never really live up to what this guy wants me to do. And at some point, I was just like, stop telling me what to do. I'm not going to listen to you. And I carry that everywhere. I'm exactly like that. My relationship with my dad was exactly like you described. He was just constantly saying, you should do it this way. You know what you should do? Do this. Do You know what I mean? And it didn't sit well with me. And I didn't listen to anyone for years for that reason. Yeah, it's so funny. It makes me think of now when you think of your daughter and you think of what your parenting style might be. How do you approach that? Because it's so tricky, right? If if the way you express love, like you're talking about our dads, produces the opposite up to a certain point. I try not to think about it because no matter what I do, there's going to be something that comes from it. We decide what what that meant. You know, like right. I decided what my dad saying that to me meant, and she's she's going to have her things. There's really not much I can do about that other than just do the best that I can. So you don't get too in your head about it. You're like, "Uh, yeah, I think that's healthy. So 
I'm thinking of you and the kind of person you were. You talk about hustling as a musician. When we spent a lot of time together playing in bands like Plasticine and then touring, you get a lot of time yeah. to talk. And I see, and I felt like you were more of an introvert and you weren't necessarily the kind of guy who was constantly working the room and hustling. But maybe you developed into more of that kind of guy later, or I guess I, I didn't see that. You're saying what, what you're saying is true too, especially if you put me next to you and Steve Strongman. In a situation where, you know, I wouldn't be the one going out and talking to people to like promote the band I was in, but I was always one working really hard on my craft and being around musicians and like making calls and like yeah. trying to put myself in this in situations where I would get gigs. Yeah. On the level that you're talking about, where I kind of reached out a little bit further, I totally agree with you. I, I wasn't, I didn't reach that far. And even now, that's something I'm learning to do better now in my career now. It's like I'm kind of taking it to the next step. And what you're pointing out to is a little bit more of like how I was short-sighted in how I approached my business as a drummer. Yeah, it's interesting. Because I think of myself, and you, you say me and Steve Strongman, and Steve's like the biggest extrovert you'll ever meet anywhere, anyone who's ever met him. And he was on the podcast, people just listening to him talk and tell stories. I really look up to him in terms of, just dealing with people I've learned so much in my life. I'm really not naturally like that. And at the time when we were playing in that band, I was forcing myself to be that guy. And in a lot of ways, it was good for me. So it's interesting what you learn as, as you go through these things. And especially looking back and, you know, us at the age where we're, we're at now, looking back and, and kind of seeing the evolution. But when you're in it, you don't notice that kind of shit, right? And I think, you know, when I look at that, I can even see how I was being like, not supportive to you and Steve. Like we're in this band and you two were working together, but the two of you were always front and center and promoting it. I was still in my world of like, okay, well, I have this. And what other creators or songwriters can I team up with to create more work for myself? Right. Right. So it's like, it's just, it just kind of points to more who I, I think at that time where I was and how I wasn't looking at the big picture of things. See, when I look back, I think, man, I could have done better as someone who was hiring you and Adam at the time. I could have treated you guys better. I could have communicated better. So much could have been better in terms of setting up the right kinds of expectations. Because I think a lot of those tours, I mean, we didn't tour that much, but the few that we did were set up in a way where you guys sometimes didn't know what was going on. You didn't really know what to expect. You're kind of flying by the seat of your pants and you're put in a lot of uncomfortable situations, right? And I look back at that now and I go man, I feel lucky that they didn't they didn't just give us more shit than they did. You know what I mean? It must have been hard for you at times. That's a touring musician in Canada. I mean, it's like, <laughs> like not the first time I've been through that kind of thing, you know? Like I, um, I think to my, you know, one of my most memorable tours is when I was a kid touring with Jack Soul before Jack Soul had ever signed any record deal and we toured the country for the first time. I, I did that for $15 a day. Oh Literally, that's, that's what I ate on. And we were living in essentially, you know, all of us in a 15 passenger van with all of our equipment driving across the country. In a lot of ways, it sucked. And in a lot of ways, it was one of the best experiences of my life. That's what you get into it for, right? The adventure, the meeting people, the like just hitting the road. I mean, yeah. what did, do you remember how, how you felt at the time? Uh, at the time... I was irritated a lot of the time. And I mean, you know, <laughs> about me. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I, you were in, you still did it. I mean, I, 
even at the time, I knew if Raj really doesn't want to do this, he just won't fucking do it. He'll just go, I'm out, I'm done. That's true. Yeah, I, I, I was irritated, but I, I made it through. And, and really, the, I grew a lot during those times. I would say a lot of my biggest growing experiences have been on difficult, like difficult road conditions. Right. Another one I can think about is I, I toured with Remy Shan before he had, he had really blown up and we did this, what they call the Chitlin circuit in the US. And he was signed in Motown and there was Remy's band, which was just three of us. And then a Motown, a Motown lounge band that was about 15 of them. And, and you were we, opening for that? We were opening and we were doing this like, you're going across the US and you know, when you're playing the Chitlin circuit, it's a completely different situation you know everywhere we went remy and i and one other band member were the minorities and you're not used to that growing up in kitchener waterloo right no no and and we were outsiders right and and they didn't really like like us the way we played I, i've always said this to my wife is like i became a man on that tour i went from like a little boy who wanted to play drums from a living for a living to like literally becoming a man on that tour because i had to go through so much right do you remember a specific instance where you had to face up to something some fear or, or like just uh, have to you know protect yourself I, I think the instance that i remember the most is being in my bunk and listening to them talk about us we had the back of the bus they had the front oh so you're traveling together in a bus yeah oh, we I were didn't traveling realize. together in the bus and listening to them talk about us at the front of the bus like just basically putting us down cutting oh my us god up. that's terrible there was two members in the band that were like really like one his name was abdul he played in fatback uh -huh. And he was saying, you got it all wrong. They're actually a band that knows how to play together. And we, we got a lot of work to do. The rest of them were putting us down and just sitting there listening to it and thinking, I'm not cut out for this. I'm going to go home. Like, this, that's it. It's all over. Time to just pack it in. But you didn't. All three of us didn't. We found our way through it. Oddly enough, you know, Remy's album came out after that tour he went right to the charts we did a show together about a month later and you could just see the growth we had just kind of surpassed them and it was all really in just who we were being and how we felt about the whole situation that's really interesting and it based on what you just said it makes me almost think that in terms of like lizard brain human jockeying for stature they're just looking at you guys and now you had more quote unquote success. And so even though the music probably hadn't changed radically, they just respected you more because you were, you were for real. Well, and they also saw people's opinion of, of, of Remy's music and they were like, Oh, and I think really looking back at it, a lot of it was they were threatened by it the whole time, right. but it was hard for us to see that as three Canadians playing this music, you know, that signed to, to Motown it's hard for us to see that and not feel like an imposter, right? I totally get yeah. that. You must have some great experiences from that tour in, in particular. I mean, that was a big time tour. You were getting accolades from all, you know, Elton John and people like that. You must have played some pretty interesting places and interesting festivals and shows. Does anything stand out? Uh, the thing about playing with Remy Shan that stands out the most to me is I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have. I was scared through a lot of it. Isn't that wild to look back at your life and go... I've wasted an opportunity. I've got a few things yeah. like that, man. Yeah, I was scared about being good enough. Is this going to work out? How long is this going to last? <laughs> right, right. You're looking you over know? your shoulder, right? Yeah. Oh, man. If I could go back, I would just like be in the moment and enjoy it fully. 
I have a few moments like that in my life, like with guys that I've toured with in bands, like some of my earlier bands. I'm like, I really had personality conflicts with with certain people. And I remember just fighting all the time or just really not getting along and not enjoying the moment of the experience and all the, everything was new. You know, you're discovering what touring's like, you're discovering what playing for people, you're meeting all these people. And all the while you've got this underlying current of being irritated, like you say, or, you know, not enjoying the relationship. And I'm, I look back and I go, why didn't I just enjoy that for what it was? You know, just, just accept it and go, this is what it is. Have fun. I have so much of that. And I'm seeing more of it now that I don't play music for a living. Like I don't play that much music right now. Uh-huh. especially because of COVID. But I did a little bit last year with Michael Casehammer. Okay. Who was, it was interesting when I first started playing with him. Again, I would be scared all the time because he usually has great players and I'd be in the world of like, am I good enough to do this? Once I started making money doing something else and I'd get behind the drums and sometimes I'd get behind the drums with him and I hadn't played in months. Like right. I, hadn't even, I hadn't even picked up, picked up drumsticks. And when he plays Michael... One minute into it, he could be like, drum solo. Um, (laughs) Literally, that's how he would be. I was fearless in a way that I'd never been before. And I had this freedom to play because it didn't matter. Like That's so interesting. I bring up this guy, Derek Sivers, on this podcast a lot. Do you know who he is? The CD baby guy? He's such a great writer. He does these blogs that have really changed my life in a lot of ways. He's a musician himself before he started CD baby. So he toured all over the world with different people. One of his blog posts was saying, it's basically saying the happiest artists he knows in his life do it as a hobby. They make money other ways. You know better than anyone, the, like what you're describing, right? This, this yeah. idea that money's not a problem. I do this for fun. I know where it belongs. And you have that balance as opposed to being an artist. And the, the thing that we talk about on here all the time is you're an artist, but living the life of the artist, you only do your art four percent of the time anyway because the the other 96 percent is just hustling business anyway so you might as well do something that makes money (laughs) and you'll probably you'll probably spend more time doing your art as a hobby at that point totally and i mean that goes in the whole other direction i think we've had this these conversations before where i look at you know if i was a musician today i would approach my business and i call it a business for a reason, completely differently. You know, one thing that I didn't understand then that I do now, you're either an artist or you're in sales and you're never doing both. I don't understand that. Can you talk more about that? Well, you might be doing both, but what I mean is if you're an artist, you don't care if you're getting paid or not. You're putting very little effort into selling your product. Mm -hmm. If you want to make a living from it, then you better understand that you are in the business of selling something. Yeah, that's what I say to people when they come to me to produce something. That's one of the first conversations I have almost exactly word for word. Like, what are we doing here? Are you trying to connect with an audience? Because if so, you're going to have to make some changes and you're going to have to look at what you want to get out of this. And if you're not, if we're just doing art here, you know, it's a blank page. Let's just have fun. (laughs) Yeah, because those who who are themselves, who do it for art and sell to to the masses, are fortunate. Yeah. And it's funny because like, really, they're the ones that are confident enough to just be themselves. It's That's ironic. what brings, that brings the success uh, versus like trying to craft something that's going to sell. Yeah, that often just doesn't feel authentic. Yeah. One of the big things that happened for me when I went from being a touring musician for 
however long it was, over a decade in producing, was I really found that being able to make plans felt so great. Like just this idea that as a touring musician, I was always like keeping time open, even if I wasn't touring, because I knew if there was a gig, I didn't want to make plans because I had to take it for survival. And I just remember thinking, I can make fucking plans. I can, I can go, you know, with, I can, I have friends now. Did you yeah. go through that? I, uh, well, you mean that like now that I'm a real estate agent well, now and I'm that not, you can, like, now that you switch from, you went from a touring life to being, you know, someone that can control their schedule in a different way. You're not working for someone else, right? I mean, the, the two jobs are very similar. You, you wouldn't believe how close they are to each other. You know, I'm not working Saturday nights or Sunday nights or Friday nights anymore. But if someone wants to go look at a house on a Saturday afternoon, I'm still on that. <laughs> You're still, still on that keeping it open. I still have a bit of that keeping it open. Now, I, I'm, I'm in control of my calendar, and really all of us are, right? What you and I are pointing to is just something. That's how we managed our calendars. We left it open, and we decided to live that way, that to leave it open and really jump at uh, every opportunity. But right. we can put those boundaries in, into place, but... I'm still in that mindset where, you know, if a customer wants something, I'm there to provide them the service. So I still have a bit of that going on in my life. Now, in saying that, I'm really happy to have my Saturday nights, Sunday nights, Friday nights. Like, I definitely, I can have a social life where I felt like I didn't have any social life before. We talked about practice a little bit, and you talked about the idea of someone who's been a pro musician and had that dedication to their craft is well-suited to do any kind of business, including real estate. So I, I always have so much respect for for you, and especially drummers, because I feel like it takes a certain kind of discipline to play the drums at the level that you play it at. You don't have to have to do a lot of the other roles in music. If your time is not up to a certain level, it's just not going to cut it, right? And so you have to do certain kinds of exercises that the general public don't understand and don't understand the kind of dedication and meditative quality that that kind of focus brings with it. So where I'm going with all this is, what do you do for that? Do you practice still? Rob, I haven't picked up a drumstick. I did a little Facebook Live when this pandemic first started where I played a bunch of drum grooves and had people pick what the songs were, you know, like I played Come Together or... Ticket to ride. I have literally not picked up drumsticks since then. So I literally, I've played the drums once this year. That's not a niche that you need to scratch. You're getting what you need other ways. Because I, I just think of practicing the drums, you know, doing exercises where you're, you know, slow metronome, 40 BPM, playing quarter notes, you know, fundamental stuff. You know, yeah. this is a meditation. You're You're a yogi. What's your medicine, man? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's a, like, I could answer that. Some, so one thing that you pointed out that I do miss is like, you're pointing at the Jim Blackley, like practicing ride simple patterns of 40 beats per minute. And yes, it's very much like meditation. I actually do miss that, which is funny because it's more like a meditation rather than the practice. My life now is completely different. You know, I meditate, I'm grateful, I work out, I play tennis. And all my creativity comes from building my business. Even for people who follow me on Instagram, I do videos for my work. And Oh, yeah, I I'm loving think, the Insta stuff you're doing, man. It's great. Yeah, I would never actually put my... Funny enough, when I was a musician, I didn't want to put myself out there like that. 
you, I never could have seen you doing that. The Roger that I knew when we played together would never have done that. That's a couple of things. One is like stepping into real estate and taking it on completely and just seeing where we're going. I would say door knocking gave me some confidence too. being having to go up to a door, knock on someone's door, and then all of a sudden be in a conversation. Our buddy Steve that we talked about earlier said that at a certain point, part of your like daily routine, I don't know how many times a week you did, it was like 300 doors a day, something like that. I, no, it wasn't that many, but my first year, I basically would wake up every morning, take my dog, walk my daughter to school, and then I'd go to a street in the neighborhood and I'd do between 100 and 150 doors, like right up until noon, nine until noon. No, no preamble. This is a cold knock. Cold knock. And what I would do is I'd prepare the night before all the stats, like I'd know all the stats on that street. I'd write them down on the back of a card so I could say, so do you want me? I can actually tell you exactly. I'd love I did to so hear this. Times. This is inspiring, man. Yeah. So first thing I did is I partnered up with a coffee shop in the neighborhood and I said, look, would you be willing to do a door hanger with me? And I'm going to go door to door. And the first thing I'm going to do is talk about your coffee shop. And I'm going to offer them a free coffee if they bring this in. Would you be willing to give them a free coffee if they bring it in? They said, sure, let's partner up. So I had all these door hangers and I'd knock on the door. I'd knock and they'd answer and I'd go, hi, my name's Roger Travassos with Remax. I have a free coffee for you here at Last Drop Cafe. It's a great little coffee shop on the corner of Cotswold and Salmon. Have you ever been there before? And they'd be like, oh yeah, I kind of seen it before. And I'd go, well, take that in. There's parking in the back. Feel free to stop by and get yourself a free coffee. And then I'd say, I'd love to be your resource for all your real estate needs. I thought I'd let you know that there was 10 houses that sold on the street last year. And for a house like yours, the average sale price was, you know, 950000 They go, really? And I just start a conversation with them. Like, and I can still do that right now so easily because I did it so many times. It just comes out of me. You did the 150 a day for how long, roughly? Pretty much that whole year, I uh, I went through a whole circuit of 5,000 homes three times. I can't even tell you how inspiring that is to me. That's fantastic. But of course, it's you. It's the same way you dedicated yourself to the drums, right? Right. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it happen and nothing's going to stop me from doing it. And I just jumped into it. So do you remember how you felt at the time walking up to the doors? I remember one of the first, like, I think it was my second day knocking on the door. I knocked on the door and someone answered and he was all ear. I, okay, first of all, when I'm walking up to the door, I'm scared. Literally <laughs> my first few days, I'm scared, I'm nervous. Uh, what my dialogue is, I'm irritating them. I'm inter interfering with their life. They don't want to hear from me. They're going to be irritated and yell at me. So I knocked, this is literally second door of the day, of the second day, I knock on the door and he gets all mad. And instead of just going into my thing and being confident and saying, like, I'm bringing some value, I kind of back away and just give him the card in fear. Yeah. He takes it out of my hand and slams the door shut and looks at the number. I'm wearing a toque because it's in the middle of winter and he doesn't realize that I'm the guy on the card. And he calls me right after and goes, your idiot guy just came to my door and is like yelling. And I'm thinking, that's it. I'm going to go home today like i don't know i don't know if i can do this right but i i barreled through and the reason why i'm bringing that up now is whoever i'm being when i go walk up to that door so if i'm in the world of i'm intruding they don't want to hear from me i'm and i have all this negative energy really truly that's what i get at the door 
I can say this from experience the, because I've done it so much. If I wow. bring that to the door, that's what I get. If I come to the door, light, happy, I'm going to bring you something you might be interested in, you might not. Either way, I hope you have a great day today. My outcome, and, and I bring that confidence, every conversation is different. So what do you think's at work there? You think it's all subtle body language things that human beings sense, almost like a dog that knows that you're scared of it kind of thing? I don't know how to put my finger on it, Dad. I mean, I think you and I have talked about this. We listen to a lot of the same kind of podcasts called Vibrations. You think there's more to it than what than your actual body language? You, what you are giving off just naturally. I, I, I honestly do think that that plays a difference. I mean, think about even in playing music, uh-huh. right? And this, I think about playing music all the time and how I was scared sometimes or it wasn't wasn't free. If you think about all the best performers you've ever seen, it's like if you go, it's like performing on stage. If you go on stage and you have that going on, you're that's what you're going to get. You're going to get what we got in Winnipeg. People are going to throw ice <laughs> at you and say, go home. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember being scared when we got on stage, but we were scared when we left. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times you're getting what you put out there. I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm loving talking to you about this stuff, Raj. This is fantastic. So, Roger, you've made these huge changes in your life, and it seems like you're doing a lot of work on yourself. And I wonder whether you're doing anything specific or there's any kind of formal framework. So, I, yeah, I have done the work of the Landmark Forum, and it has made a huge, profound difference in my life. I'll share with you what, what I got out of participating in the Landmark Forum. One of the biggest things or events in my life that had an impact on me, I'm in my space of whether I should share this or not. It's totally up to you, Rob. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the, so one of the biggest things, you know, we were talking about earlier about just how I was an introvert, you know, on the road and sometimes I didn't talk too much or how I'd be on the road and I would be irritated. One of the things in, in my past that I went through that most listeners wouldn't know is when I was 18 years old, I lost my mother to some like really unfortunate circumstances. Someone walked into her workplace and took three lives, one of them being my mother's. You know, my experience of life after that was always that I was irritated or when things weren't going my way, like I had a chip on my shoulder. Really, in a lot of ways, I was kind of playing a victim of something, you know, that I wasn't in control of something. And one thing that really changed my life and really made a difference in me moving forward is I did the Landmark Forum, and, and I learned how to make my mother present in my life again. And I also started to understand that, you know, that it's possible for me to have a willingness to forgive some someone for something that they did. And I found that people don't do things in life just because they want to be mean. You know, that's how life occurs to them in, in the moment. And it might really hurt me. Like I had I had a feeling like someone was out to really intentionally hurt me or my mother. But I actually started to see that someone someone was actually suffering. That's why they did what they did. And that in itself has like a tragedy that allowed me to have a willingness to forgive. So to answer your question, the more I, I've been doing a lot of work and really a lot of it has to do with me looking at my life and how I'm being in it. 
You know, I had a really important uh, meeting this morning for a listing that's over $3 million. And I had kind of put everything together, a plan. And I got up this morning and I realized I'm not fully prepared for it. <sighs> and I also realized that I did it intentionally. You, how can you be, that's, that's being honest with yourself. I didn't realize that I was being intentional about it, but I saw that I was doing it intentionally so that if I wasn't the agent picked for that, for that listing, I could actually justify it and say, well, I didn't do my best. There was like a fear of failure that got in my way of me really going all out. That's a huge thing that you're able to get to that point with yourself and do it almost, it sounds like, in the moment or not not too long after the moment's passed. And you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, that some of that ability to be honest with yourself and pick apart your actions and see their root comes from the work you did in Landmark Forum. For me, yeah. Like wow. everyone would get everyone would get their their own thing out of it. But for me, it's definitely been a life changer. That's enormous. Yeah. yeah. I mean Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I don't even really have words. I have no idea how that would feel. I, I haven't been through, I mean, what a rare, terrible experience. And to have what you described with the Landmark Forum and to help you forgive in the way you described, I mean, you can just see I'm at a loss for words. It's, it's what a big thing in, in your life. Oh, it was a huge thing in my life. It actually gave me... You know, you've kind of pointed at it earlier. You're like, I, the Roger that I know wouldn't be out there kind of doing that stuff. And you didn't say it, but like, what's it? It's like, it'd be like all smiley and like outgoing <laughs> and like light, light about stuff. The Roger right. I know is like really serious and has a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Right? Right. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, you learn to love these things about people. And I, I was a lot the same and still am in some ways. And I mean, I have childhood trauma myself that informs a lot of the way everyone has something, right? And I'm yeah. not comparing the severity of them or anything like that. It's just like you get beat up in life, right? And and it sounds like Landmark is certainly one tool that's that can really make a difference. For me, it's been a game changer, yeah. So... Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we talked a lot about things that came about through our experience on the road with plasticine in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? And here's, you're talking about Landmark Forum and how it reframes the stories we tell ourselves or, or what you attribute to events in your life. And you made a big difference with me. I don't know if you remember this. One time we we're going to Ottawa to open for a band. I forget who it was exactly. I was irritated the way I normally would be. And you probably were irritated too. And we're having some kind of conversation. I was like, well, I don't know what's going on with this guy. There's a lot of times where you make up stories about what an interaction you've had. Everyone does it to some degree, right? And I remember oh, you yeah. slowing me down and going, Rob, those are just stories you're making up in your own mind. That person you're thinking about or that interaction, that person is totally involved in their own life and they're not thinking much about you at all. So don't worry about it. Put it out of your mind. And that kind of blew my mind because at that time, I was like, oh shit, that's really good advice. That's the first time anyone had kind of, you know, backed me I up said and that said- back then? You did. <laughs> I still wow. remember it. That's crazy. I don't remember that at all. It made a big difference. Wow. I think about that a lot. Every time, you know, you go through your life and you're like, oh, you know, you remember a conversation you had. Maybe you're at going to bed and you're like, what do they mean by that? Why'd they say that? And, and you go, 
I'm just making up stories. It's got nothing to do with them. It's all me. It's true. We all, we all, <laughs> we all, we all do that all the time. Right? All day long, right? Yeah. I don't remember that situation at all. It's funny that I don't remember that. And it's crazy that I, um, that I had that insight then because, you know, I was in my mind a lot. It helped me a lot. I still go back to it. So can we talk a little bit about real estate in depth in terms of like fundamental concepts or, yeah, you know, what's happening in Toronto post-COVID? Are people leaving the city? What's going? I know, you know, in my peer group, there's two or three different groups of people who've left already. And, you know, you hear about New York City and all that. What? Uh, <laughs> school us, man. Which one do you want to start with? What's happening with real estate in Toronto? There are, we'll start with the one that stuck out the most to me. Uh, there are people leaving the city, for sure. I'm sure people are hearing too that there's a lot of transactions. The last three months in the Toronto Real Estate Board, we've had more trans, like we they've been the best records, the best months on record. July, August, and September, we had never seen those three months perform the way they did. That in itself says a lot. Granted, July and August are usually slow. And this year we had pent up demand from the second quarter, which is usually the busiest. Right. But there's a lot of things going on right now that, you know, everyone is caught up in the negative of what COVID does. And one thing that I'm seeing that's a positive in my conversations with people is I'm actually hearing people consider what is important to them. People are asking themselves, am I happy? Does this work for me? Where am I going to be in the future? What am I up to? And they're not settling for just like, I'm going to deal with this tomorrow. That makes sense. I'm having more conversations like that with people too. And I guess around leaving the city, that's one of the things that would happen where you hear these conversations of people saying, well, you know, we're paying a premium for everything living in the big city, whether it's Toronto, New York, whatever. Yet we're, we're not able to do any of the things we're paying for. So why yeah. do it? Yeah, so people are making changes, right, based on that. So we are seeing people leave the city. We're also seeing a lot of people who live in the city that want bigger homes. So we're seeing a lot of people move up. I think we're seeing a lot of people who are renting in the city that couldn't afford to buy and now are considering they may not need to come into the city as much. Buying outside of the city. I know for sure there's some artists that I've met who are like moving to Barrie or, or that I've not met, but I know who are moving to Barrie and surrounding areas because. They're not gigging in the city anyways. Yeah. Um, so why not buy their first home where, you know, they could do that with what rent used to be in Toronto. You could buy a home outside of the city, right? Yeah. Now, in, in saying all of that, you know, there's some people who think that the real estate is going to go down. I'm not seeing that, especially when it comes to homes. There's a huge demand for people who are looking to buy homes. And I'm always in these conversations and I have a long list of people who are looking to do that well into next year. Right. Condos are struggling. But again, it's not all condos. It's mostly condos are between 400 and 600 square feet. A lot of this has to do with, like we have immigrations, not as, we usually have quite, immigration is pretty high and it's, we don't have as much of that happening right now. There's no foreign exchange students. There's no travel. So the rental market is completely tanked. Anyone who's renting right now, this is your opportunity to find if you need more space to go out there and look and get a new place to live and you're going to get a great price on it and you're going to be rent protected for the future. Mm -hmm. Just something for some people to consider. 
for people who live in the city that want to stay in the city, if you've been looking to get into a first-time home, I would really pay attention to condos over the next six to eight months because there's a lot of inventory out there. They're going to start to drop in price, and you're, you know, this is going to be your best opportunity to get into the market because it, it's not going to stay that way. This is just my opinion. I know. I think a little bit of what we're seeing is a bit of an overreaction in, in every area. I do think work is going to change in the future. People don't have to, won't have to go into work five days a week. But Zoom, all of these things existed before COVID and we preferred not to use them. We preferred to be face to face. And when we can get face to face again, we were, we are going to want a good amount of that. And yes, you're going to be working from home too. But I don't think it's going to be as extreme as some people think. And then when you look at condos, don't forget, we're, we are trying to protect the green belt in Ontario. For anyone who cares about the environment, you know, we do not want suburban crawl, right? right. We do want to, we do want to keep things populated and like protect some of the land so that we can take care of it. So I think, you know, the outskirts of Toronto are going up in value and, and that's great. And Toronto hasn't dropped in value. And I think over time, the condos will come back too. It's just something that we're seeing now. Thanks for that insight. I felt like the other step was way more interesting than just <laughs> talking about condos. <laughs> well, I, I just think a lot of people don't, you know, how often do you get to talk to a real estate agent? Only when you're either wanting to buy or sell, right? You know, I think it's it's really useful for people to get kind of an ongoing conversation, even though they're not right in the moment wanting to do it. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because there's something that I'm learning as being a real estate agent is people don't talk to a real estate agent unless they want to buy or sell. And really it's, they don't do it, I think once because they think we're going to try to sell them on something or there's a lack of trust or I'm not sure what it is, but really what I've learned and I would take this into all fields, real estate agents, mortgage agents, anyone that you have that could directly relate to you you should be using them as much as you can as having as many conversations with them as possible because that's how you're going to get value. I know what you mean. So here's a story I would tell myself. Like, even though we're friends, I'd go, oh, I've got a real estate question, but I don't want to call Raj because I'm bugging him and he's busy. If I don't really want to buy anything right now, it's, I'm just kind of annoying him. You know, I'll call him when I'm serious about something. So what would you say to potential clients who might be thinking the way I just described? I say this to people all the time. Look, if you're thinking about buying a home in a year or selling a home in a year, now is your time to start doing the research, to understand the market, realize what's going on, the trends, prepare yourself. Everybody has a different intention when they're buying or selling. Let's say you were thinking about selling your home a year from now. My first question for you is like, what's your intention? When you sell your home, do you want to maximize your return? Do you want it to be an easy process? What does Rob Zabel want out of this situation that's going to make him happy? If you start having these conversations well in advance, then you can get those things and you're prepared, right? If you want to buy a home, you want to talk to a mortgage agent because he's going to tell you, you know what? Your credit score could use some help. Maybe take out a bit extra credit, make make sure you pay them out uh, on time. We'll bring your credit score up. And if you save an extra $10,000, that will put you in this bracket and you'll be in a really solid situation. And you've got time to actually implement those things. Yeah. To like actually put it into a, put a plan in place and, and respond to it. 
like half the stuff I hear on the news is late in real estate. So, you know, they're talking about what what was happening two months ago. You're looking at that. And first of all, most of it's, these are the GTA numbers. You never want to look on a macro level. Every neighborhood in Toronto has a different value. You want to start, if you're going to buy a home, you want to start asking yourself, what are my priorities? Is it lifestyle? my work being close to work or do I want a bigger place and then finding the neighborhoods and the areas that fit your budget, which is when you're going to talk to a mortgage agent and then understand the micro numbers in that area so that you are knowledgeable in what you're doing. Thanks for that. That's, I love digging into this kind of shit. Cause like you say, when you look at the news and that it's, it's hard to know exactly what it is. And, and that's always what I suspect is that it's probably late. And that, you know, if you want to get the minute to minute, you have to talk to someone who's in it. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, I, rhyming without meaning to. I could tell you, look, we had the, the greatest September in all of the Toronto real estate board. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that there was more sales than ever before? Does that mean prices are higher than ever before? What does it actually mean? They never really give you the specifics of what what they're really trying to tell you. It's just like a one-line statement. Or I remember a great one I saw, CMHC says, housing prices to go up down 18% in the next year, and they show a Toronto house. Except that the number has to do with Canada, right. and real estate in, GT, in the GTA is completely different than the rest of Canada. Like Calgary has been hit really hard by COVID. So it's like, yeah, you really need to dive deep into what you're trying to accomplish. All right. I think we should wrap up here. But before we do that, I'm curious, like, what does the future hold for you? Are you a planner, dreamer? You think in those terms? I'm both. I'm a dream, uh, like a big, big dreamer and a planner. Uh, the, what the future holds for me is is going forward in a way that I've never gone forward ever before. You know, I'm. you pointed out earlier, I'm in my mid 40s. I'm actually, I'm 47 now and I feel like I'm 20. Uh, and I'm really just kind of getting started. And what the future holds for me is really growing a real estate team, having people work for me, and um, providing great service for people and really making a difference in my industry, which I think needs some help. And really just, you know, on a personal level, like believing in that and chasing it down like 150%. I'm excited for you. Just hearing you say you're energizing me. I'm like, yeah. Let's do it. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, I love what you're doing. I mean, I call you all the I call you every once in a while, like Rob, Rob, I listen to the podcast. It's amazing. I love what you know, I love what you've really taken on. You know, I have a lot of friends who are creative, like you know, and and not enough of them are doing what you're doing. It's like really taking something on and following it through. Thanks, Raj. That means a lot to me. Yeah. Can we go can we go back to something you said? You said the real estate field needs help? When you said about building a business and a team? Well, I mean, I think if you just ask people what they think about real estate agents, there's not, um, the feedback is usually not very good. When you think about what we get paid, I think the business overall can use a real big overhaul, I think. And, and, and it's coming. You know, I see the future as real estate is there's going to be two kinds of real estate agents. There's those that do nothing for their clients or very little and they charge almost nothing. And then those, there are those that don't just sell a home, but provide end-to-end services from like movers, moving box, you know, frog boxes, for example, as an example, like moving boxes, 
that help the environment to storage spaces, painters, painters, like an overall approach to make sure not only people are getting the most for their house, but the process is a smooth, easy one for them. So you're super serving people, right, right. Yeah, that's what we do now. It's like we basically, from beginning to end, we are looking, we are looking after people through the whole process. Well, I'm really happy for you, Raj. I'm really happy for the changes you've made, and and just hearing you talk about the future like that, and knowing you, you know, 20 years ago, and and hearing you now, I'm really excited for you in your life, and uh, really happy for you, man. Thanks so much for doing this and for being so just open and honest. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I I learned a lot. Thank you. I, I really love being part of it. Roger Travassos. Man, that one really hit me. Coming from someone who I have that kind of history with, I can't articulate it. Our relationship is so different now than it was 20 years ago or 25 years ago, whatever it was. And it's been such a learning experience to reconnect with Roger through this conversation because we've had a bunch of phone conversations since and we've both changed so much. It's like we're different people. It's like, what happened to those other guys? I mean, there's still kernels of us in there. But I got to say, man, hearing Raj talk about the enormous change he's been through in his life as a result of the work he did with Landmark and as a result of lots of other things and hearing him talk about forgiving the person who killed his mom. I mean, I hesitate to bring it up because we never talked about it when we were touring in a van for weeks and months on end when we were kids. You just didn't go there. And to hear him talk about it so plainly and talk about how he's gotten beyond that and be so open-hearted and generous with what he's learned is really profound experience for me. So I can't thank him enough. And that's not the only thing. I mean, the whole thing about how you make a change in your life, even though it might seem scary. I mean, this has been an ongoing theme in the podcast. I can think of so many guests we've had on who've been through similar journeys. So I thank all the guests who've had the courage to share their stories in this way because honestly I get an enormous amount out of it and that's why I do this podcast is hopefully you people do too so thank you for coming back every two weeks thank you for sending me money on the coffee app I gotta put that plug in there I always feel weird about it I don't know why Roger helped me not feel so weird about it not so weird about promoting this thing you're getting things out into the world that hopefully help with the greater good so thanks for that too roger all right we're back every two weeks the next episode will be i gotta look at my calendar the next episode will be november 18th thanks again for listening thanks for giving a shit take care of yourselves out there in the world and sometimes why is brought to you by rob sabo Conversations are edited by Todd Donald. 